Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Welcome back to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are, joined by our special guest, Phyllis Lee. Welcome, Phyllis. Hello. Always great to have an opportunity to chat with you, Tony. Thank you. And Phyllis, if you could give the audience just a quick reminder of uh, your role here at the Center for Internet Security. Yeah, sure. So I am the VP of Content Development. As you know, everything we create over here um, in security best practices is consensus-based. So the CIS critical security controls um, are secure cybersecurity framework, as well as our CIS benchmarks, our secure configuration guides fall under me. And then um, we create hardened images, our cloud team does, in which you can get those benchmarks configured to those security settings, and they're available in um, many cloud service providers. So all of that falls under me, and um, it's a very exciting job to have. All right. And good stuff, fellas. So uh, we're going to try a little something different for our audience this episode. So Phyllis and I had the honor of uh, serving on a discussion panel at a recent conference focused on technology support for education. So everything from K through 12, but also higher education. And I, I was moderating. Phyllis was one of our panelists. And we had the two, the two other panelists. One was the director of IT for a, a university. The other uh, director of IT for, I think, a K through 12 private school. So Alex and Tom. So our our goal today was to uh, try to give uh, the audience a sense of what that conversation was like. We'll replay some clips from it and we'll talk about sort of the, some of the lessons that uh, we learned, the audience got, but also how that helps us learn at CIS and helps us direct our content development program. And Phyllis is in charge of that. So if that sounds okay, we'll jump right into it, Phyllis. Sounds great. Okay. And of course, as always, since I was moderating, Phyllis will have to have to uh, put up with us for a moment here. I had to start with a cheesy story. And so I did. And I talked about when I first became really aware of the uh, IT operational problems with that are um, uh, inherent in the educational business. And uh, I spent years in, in my prior career at the National Security Agency talking to um, academic IT people, uh, folks like uh, Randy Marchani at Virginia Tech and so forth. But one one time that really brought it home, sort of the difference between the academic environment and uh, the cybersecurity world. So somewhere towards the, not quite the end of my career, uh, we were building relationships at the National Security Agency with local universities. And this is partly a you know, encourage STEM education and bring more people into the business and so forth. So a local university in the Maryland area here that I won't name uh, sent a number of faculty members and a number of high potential students. And we kind of rolled out the carpet for the day and they were being toured and, you know, lots of discussions and demos, that sort of thing. And I was only peripherally involved. At the end of the day, the boss was supposed to come down to give them a little pep talk at the end of the day, you know, thanks for coming. And, you know, if you want to learn more, you want to get involved, blah, blah, blah. Well, it turns out the boss got called away to the director. And so I think in a panic, the staff calls me and they said, Tony, can you go down and you know say goodbye to these folks? You know, just a few nice words and et cetera, et cetera. Oh, of course, I'm happy to do that. So I, I dashed down to the auditorium and, uh, and then you'll find out why they'll never ask me to do that again. So I, I'm talking to these, uh, you know, amazing academic folks and a number of students. And one of the faculty folks asked me a question and they said, um, and these are traditional computer science, computer engineering kind of professors, They're very smart people. And uh, one person asked me, so how do we learn more about this cybersecurity business? You know, what's it really like and all that kind of stuff. And I turned to the audience and I said, hmm, how many of you faculty members can name more than one person that works in IT operations at the university? And I got the quizzical look you might imagine. I said, you know, the people that, uh, you know, plan all your IT, implement it, run it, they come figure out, figure out why your printer's not printing and you're not connecting to the file share and so forth. And I still got more quizzical looks. And I said, well, if you really want to learn what this cybersecurity stuff is about, it's really happening in your IT operations and in the basement of the building, right? The universities have been in this fight forever. You know, it wasn't BYOD. It's tens of thousands of students show up with their virus-laden laptops every year, and you have to integrate them into a computing environment. And uh, it wasn't about, you know, the protection of IP. It's professors who've 
refuse to follow security rules, right? Because it, it pre, you know, it prevents them from cooperating with professors and researchers across the world. And so it's been a really challenging environment for IT operations. And the people that I know that work there, uh, you know, are really good. And but they're really uh, overwhelmed by the complexity and the pace of the problem. So if you want to learn, this is about this is not about academic excellence so much as it is about pragmatic uh, operations. And so get down there, and, you know, get some practical experience and so forth. Anyway, so that was the way we we started the uh, conversation there. And each of the panelists introduced themselves in turn, and I won't replay any of that. But we, my opening question was to Tom, who supported. Um, advanced education and IT operations, very ex- uh, experienced fellow. And he said something that I could, I could hear audience members gasp. He said, the state is funding our sock. <laughs> and I had to ask him, now, Tom, you got to explain to me, how did that happen? And so we'll play the clip real, real quickly here to give you a sense of his answer. It's, it's crazy. We're um, I'm actually from California originally. So Louisiana is not number one in anything except for I, I talk really fast. Um, no, but they don't. So we're the slowest talking state. Um, but one of my uh, IT directors said that one time. Um, it was actually a, a total, I'm not sure exactly. I think the, the what we're doing there is amazing. So if a, a cyber incident breaks out at one of the institutions in the state of Louisiana, there is a team that's part of the Homeland Security, that's part of the governor's office, ESF-17. They like I said, report up through a chief cybersecurity officer, they hop in a helicopter and head to that campus if it's if it's farther away in the northern end of the state, they're down in Baton Rouge, with an entire team. Um, we're talking resources, everything. They come in there, stand up on the network. It is it's also part of the <clears throat> excuse me, part of the National Guard as well. Um, it's amazing. And that this last year they have actually funded um, enough to actually create a, a sock that is we have a, a group called Lonnie which is um, LS, it's at LSU but it's also there's other institutions all 29 institutions in the state actually are part of it it's public and private so Tulane also and they are we're running a sock that is like I said being paid for by the the border regions and they'll going to monitor all 29 institutions in the in the state um, now we're actually I'm taking this so I'm uh, I'm cost effective. I'll put it that way. So I'm taking that. We're actually developing programs off of that sock, and actually have a local sock at our campus. So it's just one of these. Um, like I said, it's a great investment, and the resources are there. We've had some several uh, several incidents uh, this year um, that were actually you know every all these things were put in motion before these incidents happen. It's just uh, it's remarkable, but it's a, it's a perfect illustration of how the partnership can come together and work together. And it was a, was it a function of like particular political leadership or sort of state government employees who, who just took this and ran with it? Cause it feels like an unusual story. I think. It, it is. Okay. I think it's more of a, just uh, showing the, the cost benefit analysis that, you know, for instance, if you have an institution, you know, I had, we had one institution in the UL system was down essentially for three weeks. If you add up the cost of 24-7, and I think some of the staff are still there, mm-hmm. of dealing with this incident, the reputation that, the reputation that, is, that, is, that right. the institution takes, and out, add up the money, and the investment was, it just kind of finally worked out, and I think they finally gave in. It was great. So, Phyllis, you, you heard what Tom had to say about the environment that he works in, and this, what seems to be an unusual model of really good support and funding from the state for this state-sponsored school. What, what are the bigger, big themes or ideas that you hear in Tom's story about this? Right. And I think one of the big things was, you know, number one, it was state-funded, someone who actually understood cyber, and this idea of actually helping educate students as well. It wasn't just, hey, can we have money to do this? He really wants to not just help his own school, but help other schools within the state and help the students and really try to grow the program. And so I think the big theme here was he knows he's lucky he, and, he, and he's super excited about it. And um, he also reached out to the computer science department to say, hey, you know, what can we do? How can we make this better, et cetera? So I really appreciated um, his thoughts on the whole entire thing and how... Um, you know, he just didn't want to do it on his own. And he was reaching out to others as well as wanting to help others, I think is huge. 
I think one of the things he, yeah, he cleverly sort of connected all the different parties, right? So the, the folks in the state and local government, the university administration, the professors, right? Rather than sort of, you know, you guys aren't teaching real life skills. It was, how can we use this to provide experience for your students? And he used a term a couple of times, cost effectiveness, which we don't often talk about in this business, that it was, you know, because it's, it's clearly true, right? It's cheaper to prevent problems than it is to recover from them. But so rarer is it that either anyone sees or cares about the whole cost. So we buy IT cheap, we configure it, you know, in a sloppy way because it's sort of cheaper up front, but now we pay for it at the end. So it seems like he, he, he tied all those together. And there were several follow-on questions about this. How do I get the students involved? Uh, and, you know, we started down that road. So talk a little bit more about the, the sort of real life skills that, that people could get uh, in an academic setting. So I think this is great as well, because as we all know, we all graduate with different degrees and doesn't necessarily mean you have that practical experience. So what I love about this idea of a SOC apprentice program and actually getting experience from college students is they get to see what is it like when an, when an incident actually happens? What does it mean to actually look at data? What does it mean to actually find an incident or afterwards try to recover from an incident? And it's not it's not all exciting bells and whistles all the time, right? So it's not, you know, like in the movies, you see something, you track it down. It takes time, right? It takes effort. Um, nothing comes easily. Sometimes you do get that red light and it's pretty exciting. But a lot of times it's just low and slow and you're doing your day-to-day -day work. And it's such a great opportunity to learn. Right? There's so many tools out there that we can use and benefit from. And so this is a great way for college students to say, oh, you know, I want to look at this traffic. Let me look at this traffic analyzer or say what's quote unquote normal. Right. And so I never really got that experience. You know, I worked at the NSA. We had these things called summer camps. I worked in the lab all the time finding vulnerabilities. I made a good living out of it. But then it was like, oh, let's look at real world data. And let's try to come up with some signatures to see what really is going on. And it gave me an opportunity to pause and say, oh, okay, I see this traffic. What does it mean? Let me go look and see what that specification really means at that point, IP. What's good traffic? What's bad traffic? How can I tell that an attack is happening? What is it that I need to be aware of? And how is it that I would distill this down to say, yes, this is an attack? And I think you also feel that burden of, if I'm going to go forward and say this is really bad and I'm going to cause action to happen, I really better make sure that this is a real um, threat because people are going to spend money. People are going to take action on my words. And, and, and so I think that kind of experience is invaluable. Yeah, you're right. And there's, you know, real life is so much messier and complicated. The data can be corrupted or incomplete. And you're going, well, what do you mean? What do you mean they didn't log this? You know, that kind of thing is just an everyday occurrence when you're really uh, recovering from, you know, uh, doing incident analysis, doing log construction, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think that, and that, that term of art, you, you know, we use that commonly here at CIS, SOC Apprentice Program. And there are a number of these kinds of things uh, at, at numerous universities that I'm aware of, you know, this attempt to bring real life skills into it. And I have to tell you that from my experience in dealing with employers, that's what separates the successful job candidate from the rest. You know, it's, it's great that you have the degree, but do, do you have some demonstrated real life skills? You know, could you, did you do internships with local law enforcement or that kind of thing could be a real distinguisher there. So if, if any of the listeners uh, to the podcast are interested in that kind of thing, uh, we have a number of partnerships that CIS is working with, with universities that, that are under that loose umbrella. There's no one SOC apprentice program. This is a multi, you know, university around the nation kind of a thing, but it, it turns out to be a really good thing. And as you said, the, the, the other panelist, Tom, really did a nice job of sort of connecting all that into one, right, to sort of and getting the academics on his side, getting the administration to see this, the political leaders and the funding. So really, a, a, you know, it was a good opening and I think got a lot of attention. The second big uh, question, if so, Alex was the uh, K through 12 uh, IT person. And so he, he was, he, uh, came into a situation that many people come into, right? So he was a CISO for a, a you know, significant size school and uh, he was coming in to an existing program. 
And so, you know, we, we made the joke of, right, we're from the government here. You know, when you come into a new organization, the first thing you have to do is declare that your predecessor was an idiot. And therefore, we need to start all over and, you know, start from scratch and rebuild a, a really sensible program until the next person comes in. And it, but it turns out he didn't get that option because his predecessor just moved up in the hierarchy. But the, the good news was he inherited a running program. Uh, the challenge is, right, there were a lot of expectations already in place. And so we got a chance to hear him talk a little bit about sort of how he comes into that situation and what he did. And so we'll, we'll play the clip of Alex right here. So my predecessor had been at the school I was coming to for 22 years. So she had built the entire program, had wired all the buildings, had put in all the servers. Um, and she didn't just retire and leave. She's actually, she's actually presenting here on Thursday on leadership. And she is the board chair for my professional organization. So it would be a very career-limiting move to decide to say, yeah, she really didn't know what she was doing. I can fix all this. Um, and one of the questions I got was, so you're walking into a situation where the school's running. Things are operational. What are you going to do? Aren't you going to be bored? Um, one of the things that, you know, after someone's been there for a long time, if you've ever been either in a home or a position or anything for a long time, you realize that you've forgotten more about the, all the little details because you have the prompts that are there to remind you. So we had approximately a month of overlap where we spent almost every and, – and her second-in-command also left – a month later. So we lost the 22-year veteran and the 20-year veteran. So we spent the entire time trying to get that brain dump of every possible thing. So think about all the different contracts that you've signed over the last couple years. Which, one is, which ones are still recurring? Which ones are not? Where are all the network closets? Where do they actually, where do actually all the lines run? Which ones are run next to the next to the water lines? Which runs are run under the water lines? Um, things of that nature. So it's really putting together that really quick list of how do you, what are all the things that you really, really, really need to know? And then spending time developing what is it that I want to know more about? I've got to make sure I know where the closets are, where the Wi-Fi access points are, where the servers are, the passwords, all those. I got to keep it running. That makes sense. But now it's okay. We're, we're still running despite two hurricanes. What, do we do, what are the parts that we do now? What are the things that we need to assess and evaluate? And it's making those, it's those decisions that, you know, I had some mandates from my head of school I had some ideas of what we wanted to do, but we found plenty of work to do just in shoring up the the little holes. You know, when you when you when you're not walking into the gaping hole of everything's on fire, you get to start focusing on what's the policies that we're going to run. What are the what are the changes that we're going to make to things like onboarding and offboarding to make it better for us, but overall better for the institution. You know, what are what are the what are the things that we need to instruct the teachers on, especially for us in a K-12 environment, because the rules are changing for all the different software. I have, I've had, in the, just in the, what, about 15 months I've been on the job, I've had six of our major software vendors change their licensing policies so that technically I really don't want to ever use them again. Um, so it, it, there's, there's a lot to, to kind of go through and read through, but it's, it's, creating that framework and that overall message of we're going to do this very methodically, keep everything running and rebuild, keep that trust going. Cause we had a lot of trust inherent in the organization. Okay, Phyllis. So we heard all Alex talk about this, uh, this case where he came into a, uh, an existing running things are going, but there were a lot of things that he had to do, right? It wasn't like you just come in, hit the buttons and start. And he talked about a lot of problems, you know, Talk about some of the, the challenges and the things that he took on uh, as he started coming into this situation. What I love to hear that made me chuckle, but also made me, you know, tense at the same time was when he said, oh, and then they walked me around to show me where all the, <laughs> all the closets were and all the servers and the this and the that. And it's like, I mean, how many times have we heard that story? 
It's like, oh, there was a router here that I had no idea of. And in my head, I'm thinking, where was that net network diagram that we always say as as cybersecurity, you know, writers of requirements and, and things like that. We always, you know, write these things down. And, you know, it's just he was fortunate in the fact that um, there was overlap with his predecessor who could walk him around and do all that. Um, you know, I'm curious, did he ever end up documenting everything so that the person who takes the job after him gets it. But, you know, it really is those, those themes of, you know, um, you, you do need to understand what your predecessor did. He was fortunate in the fact that he did get to have that overlap time um, because not everything is well-documented as we know, even though we always recommend that in every single controls framework, um, <clears throat> those data flow diagrams and that architecture document, but also, um, he knew that he had to work with the staff, work with his environment, work with K-12, everybody, the administration and the teachers, and really create that trust. You know, he did get a lot of questions on how do you work with the teachers? How do you do this? And he said, you know, what I thought was great was um, he said, you know, I work with them and let them know that I'm a trusted person. I'm here to support you. He's not trying to be combative. You know, um, I've heard so much from K-12 IT staff. You know, the teachers really want to have new software to help the kids. They get excited. They go to a conference. You know, for all the bad press, the bulk of the teachers want to do well by their students. And so they're like, oh, this new software is going to be great. This is going to be great. And he was like, you know, I'm trying to work with them. But at the end of the day, I am going to say, okay, we're going to consolidate on this. We understand that you have, you want this capability. We're going to narrow it down to one to two pieces of software that, that, that provide this capability. So, you know, I do like that he's saying, I hear you, but we can't have 10 different things that 10 different pieces of software that, that do the same thing. We're going to just pick what we believe are the best two or whatever. So, yeah. You know, and this, there, yeah. Sort of two big classic themes there, right? One was the first one you talked about was this, um, you know, the institutional knowledge that gets built up and is stored, frankly, and mostly in people's heads. And, um, you know, yet it's essential to the running of the system. And one of our, one of the friends of CIS, I just visited, uh, is the CISO for a city out in the Midwest. And, and uh, she introduced me to one of her team. And she goes, he's the only person that knows where all the cables actually go. The la the literal last hundred yards, you know, and she says, I'm trying to get out of his head into some place, right? Because this is not a person that's young or early in their career. But, you know, and he said, she said, that's the practical problems of a municipality, right? All these, you know, conceptually, we got grand architecture, but at the end of the day, it comes down to who can find the cable in this conduit going into the building. But, but those are, and how many times either did he say, or we think, did we think inventory, right? The inventory of assets and where are the cables and the closets and the locations and what human being has access and all that, right? And then the, the second point you raised is a really important one. And, you know, we used to, we, we always saw this at the kind of DOD level, right? The mission, the IT, the need for policy and control of an enterprise. And he's talking about these real life practical problems of they're running like nine different quiz programs across the school. We can't, and by the way, some of them have such wacky licensing terms, right? They're, I would never buy this stuff, you know, because he's more knowledgeable of the IT licensing and privacy issues that he's got to deal with. And they're just looking at, wow, this was really cool. I saw it at a conference and it does, you know, it's easy to use and the kids like it. And so that, you know, you're right. He presented that really well, you know, that I need to help you guys, right? This, the mission's got to get done in DOD talk. We are going to execute the mission, but we have to do it with confidence, right? With, you know, with safety in mind, with these constraints. So let's figure out how to get there. And I think that's a really important one. This sort of, there was a lot of talk in there about trust and uh, changing the culture, right? So he came into an existing technical operation that was successful, but he saw the need for culture change around better policies, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think that was a really, uh, you know, great opener for him also. So Phyllis, you got an opening question also, right? And uh, because you've got a lot, had a lot of experience here over the last couple of years dealing with schools, not, not necessarily one at a time, more at the systemic level and sort of thinking about their problems 
and the, the world around them, you know, for example, regulatory. So let's hear your answer and I'll give you a chance to respond to yourself and we'll play that for the audience. As you were speaking, I was ticking off, oh my gosh, yes, yes. Like, you know, where are the closets? <laughs> and all those things. And, and you know, um, during the pandemic and post-pandemic, we got a lot of outreach from K-12 in particular and some community colleges because K-12 in particular were becoming subject to state privacy law. And so, as you well know, you have an IT staff of two supporting, um, you know, teachers and, and the school district, then all of a sudden they're, they're supporting thousands and the bulk of their users are children, right? And so there's really not that user training. There's not, you know, a lot that they can do. The number one priority is we need to get up and running. We need to provide children education. That's our number one priority. Then later on you realize, oh my gosh, now the school system's been hit and not only are we learning at home. Now we can't even support learning at home. Everybody's upset. Every, you know, schools, parents, everyone. And so then cyber became an issue. And um, <clears throat> in particular, we worked with a small um, school district and we, we, you know, the controls have um, uh, the framework that we support, the CIS critical security controls has a priority scheme called implementation group one. I'll just give you a little context. We believe that IG1 is doable by all organizations, regardless of size, and recommend that all organizations start with implementation group one, and we've done, this, we've done the studies to say, hey, it'll protect you against the top five threats, et cetera, including ransomware. And so we have a free online tool. We walked them through this tool. And um, every kind of, we have like a one, 1.1, 1 1.2, 1 et cetera, and the 1.1, when I was thinking of you, every 1.1 is have a policy for whatever. So have um, hardware inventory asset policy, software inventory asset policy, data policy, all these things. And the K-12 was like, I've never had to write one of those policies in my life. I, got, I failed all of these. We didn't do any of this. What are you talking about? I don't even know, what, I don't even know how to get started. And so I thought, you know, that's, that's a really good point. So we created policy templates so that um, all small, medium enterprises, K-12, businesses, et cetera, could use these policy templates as a guideline, kind of fill in the blank. And then out of that, it's like, oh, and we should probably create an acceptable use policy, you know, modify it for your kindergartners, all these kinds of things. And so that kind of feedback really helped us and gave us guidance on what kind of implementation guides that we should provide. And, and it's true that the IT staff already was doing a lot of, stuff, and they already knew a lot of stuff. It was documented. <laughs> and, you know, that idea of actually having to write it down um, and, and, and being a little more clear is daunting, right? Because in your head, you know what you want, you know where things are, but then to write it down and document it and to create a policy and procedures and put those in place, it's a big lift, especially when you are just trying to, you know, keep the lights on, et cetera. And if you're not funded for it, <laughs> right? Because the number one, you know, priority for them really was um, education. And they were just like, well, we don't have that funding for that, Phyllis. How can we do this low cost? And so we really tried to step in and really want to try to help those organizations and minimize cost as best we can. Yeah, thanks, Phyllis. And again, we're seeing more, I'll say, systemic yeah. Uh, looks at this, right, as opposed to school by school, like what can we do for a district, what can we do for large yes. aggregations of schools? Right. And, and you know, trying to partner with, like, Google. Like, you know, I heard a lot of feedback. Yeah. We just want to automate, so we're trying to work with Google because all the kids have Chromebooks. Like, can we do something out of the box? Right. I mean, I talked to one IT administrator who was like, if you could just automate one thing for me, I'd be, I'd be so happy. Right. <laughs> and, that, and that's part of what we need to do more collectively, right? The, the, the implicit model that I grew up in in computer security, and many of you are still stuck with, frankly, is uh, every enterprise is unique and special, right? We're all special snowflakes out there. You know, we oh, your risk assessment, the risk appetite, they call it, of your management is different. And, but, you know, our, our guiding principle for us at CIS is we have more in common in cyberspace than different, right? We're all getting hit by the same crap. We're all using basically the same technology. We're basically living on the same network. We're all interconnected in ways that we can't even describe. Okay, Phyllis, so that was you, you talking about this question of sort of the, the schools at a systemic level. What are the big lessons that you would like the audience to take away from all that? Yeah, so once again, um, like we say, mission matters. And so 
you know, the schools really believe that what they need to do is um, provide um, education for the children. And with this added now burden of we're all online, everyone's doing everything um, on Chromebooks or laptops or whatever, depending on what grade you're in. And we also need to provide it securely. So number one, the availability has to be there. And number two, it has to be secure. And so the poor IT staff, like I said, is going from hundreds to thousands and the bulk of their users are children. And so it's a, it's, it's a lot and they take their mission seriously. And so while they were motivated to come because of state privacy law, of course, um, which gets you that administrative support, which is what you need. And, you know, many of those schools are looking at state funding to try to get that because of the state privacy law. <clears throat> comes down to how is it that we can best support our students? How is it that we can best support our teachers? And so um, what I love about working with the K-12 is that there is a lot of commonality across the different organizations, right? And the, the, regardless of state, regardless of your uh your state privacy policy, you know, they really just want to help the students and they're well organized. So they do come together in regions. So perhaps prior it was all about, hey, <clears throat> we want to use these learning education tools, et cetera, et cetera. But now it's also about cybersecurity. What does your cloud service provider provide you? How are you getting your state privacy um, laws into these contracts? So on and so forth. And so they really are working together once again you know, for the children and, and our education, I really appreciate it as children who, you know, has someone who had two children who went online during the pandemic, trying to get everyone up and running. <clears throat> and I thought, wow, how lucky are we that my husband and I already have a lot of computers, <laughs> you know? So if one failed, which sometimes, you know, one of their computers failed, we, we, we bring something else up or if, you know, um, if the bandwidth wasn't there, I turn off my video. You, you know what I mean? And so we were able um, to do that and we understand IT somewhat. And so we were able to help troubleshoot. But, you know, these, these administrators, the IT staff is thinking, how is it that I can provide a safe environment online for children who don't have any technical expertise and may not have that at home? What's the best way? What's the simplest way? What's the most affordable? Yeah. And your, and your lesson about... Um you know, it's, we don't need to solve this school at a time or even bundle at a time, but just a regionally, you know, it's, it's a classic illustration of one of our themes at CIS, right? We have more in common than different. And so you're not trying to solve, you know, a hundred different problems. Everyone's got to deal with these issues of uh, protecting IT, you know, of uh, how do I uh, successfully use a cloud service provider? How do I uh, respect these privacy laws and so forth? So there's every reason to try to do these more at a systemic level so that individual educators and school technicians can worry about the educational delivery. <laughs> Frankly, that's where we want them spending their time. So I think that's neat. Any other things for the listener around work that you've been doing, for example, with um, either through the ISAC or others, like, and like the work with Google and so forth, or others, other school system kind of things? Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, we hosted a session of K-12. Um, at the MSISAC annual meeting. And, you know, K-12 is the largest growing membership at MSISAC and almost like one quarter to one third at this point because they really want um, to help, you know, with, they really need to integrate cybersecurity within what they're doing. And so we worked with Google um, to say, hey, let's have an information session. We know a lot of these kids have Chromebooks. We know a lot of the kids are still using Google Classroom. What is it that we can do to automate um, cybersecurity controls within K-12, you know, as easily as possible. As one IT administrator said during that session, it was like, if you can just do one thing for me and, and automate it, and I do not have to manually do that across the network, that would be amazing. And so Google really took that to heart. And so what we are creating is a benchmark for Chrome OS and not, and, you know, one, of course, for, um, um, the browser, but, and then we're going to work with Google to say, hey, can you out of the box put these controls in place so that administrators do not need to do that? And and um, it was really great to work with these K-12 because they really let us know, hey, we need this feature, we need that feature. Um, we worked with the K-12 um, through the MSISAC in the state of Michigan who <clears throat> they did an evaluation 
um, against CIS controls. And they're like, you know, we failed every dot one. We do not. <laughs> we have never created any of these policies before. Can you help us? And so that's where we got the policy templates that we created. And, um, you know, it's they've been wildly popular, not just within K-12, but just across the board. There are many organizations, small, medium, that really needed those templates. So um, it's really been great working with the K-12. And like you said, one it's, it's a shared problem. It's not just across K-12. They do have some unique parts, meaning their end users are um, children, but they face a lot of the same problems that many small, medium businesses or organizations who are new to cyber face. Yeah. And one of the things I really like about the policy template work, you know, which has been, uh, I think, really helpful is because you're working this with the technology provider, right, with the IT operators and with the security team that you have, you know, there's, there's a, a much greater chance that the policies will reflect, reflect real life because it's easy to write paper policies. But if it's not connected to this is the way we're going to operate our, our IT, our Chromebooks are going to be configured a certain way, they're going to handle a certain way, you know, you're able to co- connect all that. And I think that's, we had several questions from the audience around that, right? That, you know, they're paper policies that, that we're no, no one knows, but at least we met the requirements and they wanted to make sure that, you know, we were thinking about these things, this connection from policy to implementation. And I think, I think I'll just show an, share an example. When we were in that annual meeting, kind of birds of a feather with the K-12, um, a senior person from Google was like, hey, at Google for MFA, because, you know, question was like, look, our cyber insurer wants us to have MFA, but we have kindergartners, kids in elementary school that they don't have phones. Their parents aren't letting them bring phones. And then he was like, well, hey, Google just gave us all Ubi keys for MFA. And then there was someone in the, an IT administrator in the office and he was like, look, I've got kids losing Chromebooks. There's no way I'm, I'm pushing out keys to these kids, right? And again, that, that kind of proves your point where you can have a policy that says, hey, give everybody, you know, hardware token, whatever. But then in all practicality, it's like, okay, how much, how practical is that? Can I depend on a five-year-old to use this every day? That's right. And, you know, we, there was a discussion back and forth about what I'll call real-life uh, risk assessment, right? Not paper, you know, the adversary might do a thousand things, but the reality of, you know, young people, frankly, handling YubiKeys or any technology, right, that they can't get their book bags to show up at the right time with the right context. And so, but thinking that through, right, what is the real risk here? And what could we do to manage that risk? Or is this risk something that we can accept? Because I think the, the, one of the panelists used the term, right, we protect the heck out of the back end of our system here, because that's where the data is about birth dates and, you know, sort of private personal kind of stuff. And thinking about that through, there was a, let me come back to one thing. Alex had a really good comment about the role of trust and relationship between teachers and IT that you talked about here. Let's go ahead and play that clip. One of the things that we have to remember from, again, working with teachers and the other pieces is that this is still about a trust personal relationship. They have to, we have to make sure that they trust us, that we're looking out for their best interest. And, you know, I've, I've said this to actually to my teachers and my department chairs, we need to follow certain rules. This is not about making about me not liking your software or me not liking the direction that we're going. We need to be practical about what we're trying to do. I've worked with schools where they want to do multi-factor authentication for kindergartners. What are we protecting? (laughs) What's the, what's the practical purpose of doing all that effort so that we can have whatever is going on for kindergartners when the information that's valuable to a cyber thief is their name, social security number, and their identity theft information because no one's going to check credit on that kindergartner for 18 years. So, so we need to protect the back-end systems really hardcore. And if somebody needs to steal little Johnny's you know, cat drawing that he made during the pandemic, God bless him, take it. Um, but but when we go back to the teachers and say, we need you to do this, well, but I really like using this piece of software. Okay, so here's the, here's the, the cost-benefit analysis. If you continue using that software in defiance of what we're telling you, I am telling you now when that company gets breached, not if, when. We all know that. Teachers don't recognize that. When, when that company gets breached – 
I can no longer protect you against whatever is going to happen because you're the one that violated our policy to give that, those students access to that software. So when there's the lawsuit or, or Johnny's information is now on the, on the deep web and his identity theft is stolen and they come looking for somebody, when the, you're getting named, like that's, this, that's the practical of this. You know, we, we will – you follow the rules. We will protect you. That's my job. I will make sure that I do everything in my power to keep you from having any liability for any of this. And all of a sudden, teachers wake up. It becomes a real thing at that point when we start – because they will automatically throw liability about whether, again, the rules, the union not wanting us to teach cyber because it's not applicable or other things. That's the, the line that, we're, there, it, that you get pushed to, you kind of have to go to because our job is protecting them and our students. And if we don't have that opportunity, there's nothing that we're going to be able to do after the fact. All right. So that's some interesting remarks there from Alex. Again, it's a theme that he came back to several times and, and you pointed out you, the need to develop trust, right? This is not the lonely security person standing on the corner, waving their fist and telling you what you're doing wrong, but working with the real constituency, trying to find practical ways through complex problems and you know, help them be a partner in the delivery of education, uh, but also do it in a responsible, right? In a confident way. Uh, Alex also talked about uh, trust and partnership issues around the uh, proliferation of tools. And this is something you've talked about, too. Let's play a clip, another clip from Alex on this topic of uh, tools. There has to be a partnership between IT and the curriculum and instruction people. <laughs> the curriculum instruction people are the ones who set the direction, and we have to give them the tools. The trick that we have, and I know that a lot of K-12s, mine included, um, the one I was at and the one I'm at now, had proliferation of tools during the pandemic because everybody was just trying anything they could just to be able to help kids get education. And that's great and that's wonderful. But your school has a, or hopefully should have some type of pedagogical philosophy or at least a department does, which means that you can find tools that work with your security posture and line up with your your pedagogical philosophy. Once you, once you have that, that philosophy and you can start looking at the inventory of tools, we all know there are plenty of tools out there that do all kinds of things. I'm currently fighting the battle between gamification tools, Kahoot, Quizzes, Quizlet, Lookit, Gimkit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We use eight or nine of them, and we're not consistent. And by the end of this year, I've, we've told everybody, we're going to be consistent. We will pick the best maybe two Maybe three if, we're, if you all get really pushed back, but we're going to two that's going to work across every single one of our subjects because it's not fair to you or us or the kids to do all of that work, to learn all of those platforms, to do all of those things. Mm -hmm. So that relationship has to occur at the top levels with IT leadership and pedagogical curriculum leadership. And if you have that partnership – it will, I tr tr it will be slow progress, but it will be progress. Okay. But you, that relationship has to occur first. All right, Phyllis. So, so we, he talked about this, this problem of multiple quiz tools or grading tools, all that kind of stuff, and the need to strike some balance between responsible manage of that. And uh, how much of that did we see back in our first career, right? The, uh, you know, if we could just buy one more tool to add on top of the 10 other tools that the poor DOD operators are running, you know, we'll certainly solve the problem this time. Uh, any, any reflection on that time there and the, the problems you know, did we create more problems than we solved in those days or what, what's your thoughts? Right. And, and I want to point out, while their tool was in the name of, oh, hey, here's this new capability. We're going to quiz children, et cetera, so on and so forth. Ours was, we need one more tool to be more secure. Right. And so it's like, you know, we're, you're, if you, you know, what's interesting is you're not quite sure of the fidelity of the data. We talked about, is it really an attack? Is it really not an attack? But hey, if, two or more tools tell me it's an attack or three or more tools tell me, or I have even more data that I can back that up with, I'm going to grab that data, right? And so that was the mentality. So you'd have so many agents running on your endpoint, trying to validate that you're not getting attacked or perhaps that you're not doing something nefarious, all these things. 
And it becomes way more complex, right? I mean, we used to joke that like some, you know, sometimes it would affect the performance of your endpoint. And also it does increase the attack surface somewhat. When you look at all the tools that we were running in the name of security, all those tools were running with privilege. And they and they all have to report back to some central server. So some poor IT guy or security guy is looking at, I don't know how many logs from how many different tools to determine what's going on in the network. But, you know, it's so funny. We always talk about how we need more data, but, you know, you get to that tipping point where you have too much data. That's right. And I, I call that we used a overworked human beings as the ultimate integration engine across the DOD, right? Throw more stuff to already overworked, under-equipped people. And your best, you know, and there's a, to your second point, you remember Richard Hale, who was the lead technical guy for the Defense Information Systems Agency. And uh, I'll just share with the audience, uh, Phyllis worked in this area for our team, so she knows where she speaks, but he, he was once quoted, and I confirmed he said it, um, security tools often have crappy security properties. And it was because how many things did we look at back in the day that were security tools that turned out to be, frankly, have terrible security properties, right? Because they're trying to build a capability. Usually what happens, they're trying to build a capability. These are tools that may have to run with privilege. And by the way, they have access to like all of your desktop clients or you know, tremendous reach. And of course, the last thing they figure out are things like good key management, right? <laughs> and that kind of stuff. So how easy it is to get that wrong with no knock on you know, the tool writers here. But you know, I think the, the sort of bottom line points, right? More, more tools can be helpful, but they often introduce more complexity. They make policies complicated. They potentially change your attack surface for the worse. And I also think you have to realize that it is confusing for your end user. If you come up with new policies and different things, and I have to memorize 10 passwords, that are minimum 16 characters for 10 different things, you know, it, it affects it affects the usability and really what was your what was your end goal? It was quote unquote to be more secure or whatever. But how many, how many great 16 character passwords can I come up with? <laughs> and, and use without putting on a sticky note. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or or at the end it's like, oh, one, two, three, four, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, you have to enumerate them. And then the same thing, you know, happens to children with all like, oh, we're going to move to this platform or that platform. Every time my children were in three different schools during um, the pandemic between the two of them, every time you introduce a new platform or a new software or a new quiz or this, that, and that, there's that learning curve and there's that frustration, you know, for the end user. And so um, while you might think it's helpful there is something to be said for that consolidation. There is something to be said for that consistency. You're only going to have to do use this set of software. And so then your end user is like, oh, okay. And several of the, actually both Alex and Tom talked about, you know, again, it, it's not as simple where one extreme is one size fits all. You'll take the program we choose and you'll love it. And the other is sort of like, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom out here, which is completely unmanageable. And again, I like the way that both Alex and Tom talk, talked about this, which is the focus on, and we have to be able to navigate between again, the legitimate interests of the administrator, the IT operational and security view, the uh, service delivery folks, right? The, the teachers in the classroom and the ability of the student, right? The real end customer to, to deal with these problems. And I always hearken back to what like you you say when I, and, and I think they had this in their minds. And so just so everyone knows, I've worked with Tony forever and I love working with Tony. And so I will go to him and say, what do you think about this or that? And, and you know, what I appreciate about Tony, what you've always said is, what what's the end goal, right? And I think what you hear in Alex and Tom is they understand their position and they understand what the end goal is, right? And that's why they're able to bring in all these other people. Yeah, and I think being able to present it that way, you're exactly right, was the key, which is to be able to, again, they don't view their job as you know, standing on the street corner or handing down stone tablets. It is, how do we make this work, right? We have to deal with the regulatory world. We have to deal with the expectations of parents and the, you know, the marketing pressures from all these folks who want to sell you all this stuff. And, and by the way, at the end of the day, what's the mission? What are we trying to do here? So, so we also, uh, Tom 
had one more quote I'd like to play or a little bit of time. He talked about this, this issue of the interplay between the IT team, the ac academics, the uh, administration and students. And let's, let's just hear this, this clip from Tom and then we can talk about it a little bit. I'm just glad that higher ed's figured this out already. So oh, we're all good. Um, Quick, everyone, let's write down the answer. Nah, it's coming. It's, um, <laughs> no, nah, you're right. It's, it's a balance. I get back to a, a, a story of a time when I was at Pepperdine University and we had a professor and um, you all understand Windows. I think it was either, maybe it was Windows 95. This professor was doing research. He had a buoy out in the middle of Santa Monica Bay and he needed to be able to get that information off the buoy for research. And it was a case of um, software, totally out of date, and it's, it's a balance. It's working with that, and, and it's what, exactly what you just said. It's working with that professor to figure out a way, okay, let's isolate that computer in a VLAN that's connected to nothing. Uh, let's, you know, take, let's do the updates, and then obviously Windows 95 can't be updated anymore. But, um, and then let's unplug the, let's unplug the Ethernet cord. Because the, the flip side is these faculty members – this is their livelihood, and I, I teach an FYE class, so I don't classify as a faculty. But it's one of these things that it's their livelihood, and when they're doing research, and if you're known as the I, the no group in IT, you're right. They're going to go buy – my favorite was someone bought a laptop at, at JCPenney's, and it was like, okay, um, no. So we have to be at the table. We have to. I'm. I'm actually not joking. Um, we have With to be at the. We have to be at the table to have these discussions. We all know the perfect network has nothing connected to it. It's funny, but that's true. It's that balance that you have to have with a faculty member that their livelihood depends on the research and that NSF grant and getting the money off that thing in order for them to be able to, to feed their children and their I mean you all know it's it's the same thing on our on our, on our side it's that balance. Okay Phil let's back to you so based on what Tom said Tom talked about this issue and uh you know he really emphasized this is people's livelihoods right so we're back to the mission and what motivates the users as opposed to what the security person says and how do we that balance you know how do we think that through right we you gave great examples of being able to open that conversation among all these different parties and help them see the, the, the need for uh, sort of responsible, secure behavior. Any other thoughts for the audience around this kind of topic? So I, I what I really appreciate about him is that, um, like I said prior, the end goal in mind, appreciating and respecting that it's not that they just don't understand. Oh, they just don't get it. They just want to do whatever they want to do. It's that everyone is really trying to do their best. And what is it that we can meet their needs? You know, here at CIS, everything is consensus-based. You know what I mean? And so we have to balance um, the different interests of different people. Um, no one's trying to be malicious. Everyone is thinking they're doing the best thing for security, so on and so forth. And it, and it really is, um, you know, what is our main purpose here? We're here to provide um, guidance or provide a service that's really geared towards helping, you know, so many folks and be practical and, and, and all these things. And to, and to listen to um, what everyone is saying, listen to their needs, keep your own goal in mind. And, you know, like you always say, coming to consensus or moving forward means that everyone's a little bit unhappy, right? It, it's not that everybody's 100% happy. It's that across the board, everyone is unhappy, but it's all something we can live with. Right. And so I can really appreciate that, um, that you've always said that. And then like Tom and Alex really have that point of view as well. Yeah, I think that there was no, in a, as we know from long careers, Phyllis, uh, uh, you know, there are no perfect answers in security either. Right. There is no perfect security. There's no singular answer. And so everything involves some amount of uh, good judgment and trade off and sort of thinking about this. Right. And if, if you want to be in a business where we can eliminate the risk, well, we're in the wrong business because it's not going to happen. And therefore, you know, again, this is about empowering people to do legitimate good things. I, I used my quote. I don't know if it was in one of the recordings or not, but, uh, you know, if you make security too onerous or expensive, your attacker or your users become your attackers, right? They go around your defenses, not because they're evil, or they don't care. It's because they have a mission. They have a job to do and they will, you know, they will do whatever they think they need to do. And you're either there to help them or you're a barrier. And so how do you 
find the role that the security viewpoint can bring to this, right? Because at the end of the day, and I think uh, Alex may have used the term, we want to protect them from violating privacy laws. We want to protect them, right, from the dangers that they that we understand better because we live in it, but they don't live in that kind of you know, soup of bad things. And so we have a responsibility to help them both understand risks, but also take steps that are, you know, that will enable them to do what they need to do, but in a way that is managed, responsible, et cetera. So I think that's all uh, a big part of it. There were several questions, just to shift gears as we get towards the end here, around the need for early education. And someone asked for a, you know, Dr. Seuss for cyber or something. And there are, there are things like that. And you've, you've bumped into some of those, right? So the um, uh, introductory education for both uh, adults and, and children. Any, any examples you care to share with the audience? Yeah, sure. So when I work with a lot of K-12, especially the administration, they really are interested in this because so many of the children, um, well, number one, they are all on laptops or Chromebooks. And um, we we are seeing um, the administrations using or the teachers using YouTube as a way to educate people. They're using our children, you know, like the Quizlets, and they're there for the kids to use for education. But as you know, you know, YouTube has some kind of AI or some engine behind it recommending other videos for everybody. And so, you know, the question is, how do we help our children understand this is the risk? You know, it's cybersecurity. So, um, you know, perhaps things don't get compromised, but also safety. What is the risk for you? So they would like, you know, the those educational tools for children, but also for um, kids' parents. You know, I think we're spoiled. We're parents, but we understand that risk. And so we probably educated our children and so on and so forth. But so many other parents don't. And so we also are asked, it's not just children, but can you also provide something for the parents of these small children who may be unaware, who, you know, who just think, okay, they're going to YouTube. The public school system is, you know, um, you know, restricting it for me and all these things. So, you know, just because your children can't play games on your Chromebook doesn't mean they can't go and watch YouTube videos that you don't want them to. Right. And so um, we've got a lot of those requests. And, you know, you speak about our work with Google and we don't have that expertise here at CIS. And we've talked with Google, who's interested in this. Um, and, you know, perhaps there are other organizations as well to provide this training for free, which is so important for everybody to have. Yeah, I think so. And I think we're seeing more and more of the, uh, say, IT vendors and you know, folks like that, right, who have a stake in the future of all this technology, uh, spending more of their own money, frankly, and putting resources and time and good people into these educational activities. And so, you know, for, for the audience, if you like this kind of stuff, you're, you're seeing that the need for that. Uh, some of this does come up in the discussions around the multi-state information sharing analysis center that uh, CIS operates. And uh, we, can, we can find resources or help you get to the right place there. And, and uh, we have ongoing relationships with a number of those vendors. So, you know, and let me kind of wrap up, Phyllis, around, you know, this complexity of the educational IT security problem. And uh, I think our friend Alex uh, had had a, a bit of a quote we'll play. This is we're not saying this to depress the audience, but to impress upon them the complexity of the problem. Let's go and play this last clip from Alice. If you remember the when he said the thing that scares me, we'll play it now for the audience. The thing that scares me to death about my current students, or actually not even the ones that are just before, we're a six through twelve is the number of kids at sixth grade who come in with a cell phone, a Facebook, a TikTok, a Snapchat, and, a, and, you, and Instagram, and used to be Twitter, but whatever it's going to be called now. Um, they're sixth graders. None of them, if you look at the terms of service, should any be anywhere near any of those platforms – I'll give, depending on, on family situations, I'll give you the cell phone so that you can, you know, again, if you're driving a lot back and forth to school or we're involved in sports, there's a, there's a practical application there, but those apps aren't for them. Okay, fellas. So, so now we know what scares one of the uh, educational IT administrators and, uh, you know, and, it, and we don't p point that out to lose hope, but to remind ourselves that the educational environment is different than folks like my age grew up in. Uh, it's a much more active, interactive 
world with uh, lots more opportunities, right, to learn from different sources, from different you know, uh, forms, but also with the complexity that comes with that, which includes social complexity, right, the access to information, and uh, how many, I think we have heard several questions from the audience, IT people who were also parents and going, what am I supposed to do, <laughs> right? And so these are people that are in the IT business, but also struggling with this complexity of, you know, what what confidence can I have that my children are not wandering down some social media rat hole that I would rather not and so forth. So that's, you know, that, so any last thoughts on the conference? And that one of the things that surprised me is we got to the uh, end of the event and it was, I'd say, uh, I'm not sure your experience, Phyllis, but it was a really lively audience. It was a fun, interactive, you know, um, room full of folks and again, lots of back and forth around questions and so forth. And clearly a lot of really passionate people about this. And, and but it surprised me that I didn't realize that this was the first conference run by that company and uh, that their business was more in publication and so forth. And so it really came across to me uh, well, but any, any impre- last impressions that you might have of the event there? Yeah. And so I think I really enjoyed working with the audience because everyone was really trying to figure out how best to navigate with the teachers, with everybody's needs. Like you said, the parents, the the teachers, the administration, state privacy law, and really what is the best way forward? How is it that I can um, figure out how to respect a professor's research, for example, the one woman who came up to us, like I've got professors doing research, they're subject to, you know, if they're doing medical research, HIPAA requirements. And, you know, this one person from a university, she was like, I've got to comply with all these different regulatory requirements. And, you know, I've got to let them be open and free because they're doing research and they're doing this. And, and this school has this, these requirements and this other school has these other requirements. And so, um, you know, number one, it's like the diversity of requirements in academia that um, they're being subject to and, and the fact that they do want to work with their teachers. You know, so often you, you do get that combative relationship. They don't know, you know, if they only knew and, and this, that and the other, but really just trying to work within that and um, again, trying to figure out, um, you know, what's the best path forward for everyone. And that sincerity, which I really appreciated. I know that sounds kind of hokey, but... <laughs> you know, I, I'm right with you, fellas. I think that's a great observation for us to close on. That, yeah, what I heard was, you know, educators, people supporting educators who were passionate about the mission, right? You know, we grew up in mission-driven organizations. And, you know, you can get a lot done if people really care. And what you want to do, right, is not frustrate what they care about, but empower what they care about. And so I think that has been a bit of a shift. So both of us, for the audience, uh, Phyllis and I grew up in a world where security people were more enforcers, frankly, right? Their job is to tell you why it's wrong. And when in doubt, it's it's going to be wronger, right? We just keep pointing things out and it's up to you to make a rational, balanced, reasonable decision. But I think that the thinking has shifted rightfully to say we're all in this together. And it's nowhere more clear than in this educational business because you've got families, right? You have passionate educators. And so it's really important for us to think of this. So it really, I think it's a great microcosm of the security problem in total. And uh, so I enjoyed it immensely. I think you did also. And uh, yeah, so I think, you know, uh, just for the audience again, Phyllis has, has led a lot of our K through 12 in particular, but it's sort of educationally oriented activity here at CIS over the last couple of years. And I think it has really helped us think about our content. And Phyllis gave some great examples, right, of this, like between policy templates and balancing the, you know, the security things with the privacy regulations and trying to pull all that into a picture. I think it's, we can say it's helped, helped shape our content development program also. And so for the audience, if you have more thoughts on this topic, we are always open to this. Uh, someone once asked me, what is the strategic plan for content in CIS? And I said, uh, this is a few years before Phyllis actually brought professionalism to the whole process. I would say, you know, I try to look around for problems that every enterprise seems to be on its own struggling to solve, but they really shouldn't be trying to solve it by themselves. It doesn't make sense from a systemic view. And many of these problems are kind of like that, right? How do we, why do we solve this at the school level? Why aren't we doing this at the district level? Why aren't we doing this, right, at a county level or whatever? And that, 
you've heard from Phyllis some great examples of that. So, well, Phyllis, thank you. As always, it's a great conversation. And, uh, you know, this is uh, great to capture some of this for the audience. And it was great to do a road trip with you also to do an event together. So always learn uh, from you and I hope uh, give some some back. So uh, any last thought you care to leave for, for the audience, Phyllis? Um, no, I think um, it was a great experience. I love the K-12 and academic um, lens. And um, what I also really appreciate is that oftentimes we look to big companies who have already solved this problem. For example, like, oh, you know, especially in the template work that we were looking at, we looked at existing templates and they were so complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Or like these big, big, large enterprises. And so what I love about our mission here at um, CIS, Tony Tony coined the term serve the underserved. And so it's really distilling things down so that everybody can use it, right? Because that uh, mature company doesn't need a policy template. They don't need that complicated 20-page incident response policy template. Guess what? They already have one, and their lawyers are telling them also what to be what to put in there, right? What, what we needed to provide was the two-page incident response policy template for those organizations that perhaps didn't have a lawyer or they're just getting started and they just need to know the basics. And so, um, you know, I learned that from K-12 somewhat, you know, along this journey, like just, we just need the simple thing. And, um, and it was great. It seems, it seems so obvious, (laughs) but uh, but then you're you're like, yeah, you're, you're 100% right. Let's do that. That makes 100% sense. And so, you know, stuff like that, uh, it like drives me. I love it. And so it, it's been great, a, a great journey with them. Oh, good, good. And uh, this was unplanned, but perfect ex- illustration, fellas, of the name of this podcast, right? Cybersecurity where you are. We try to meet people where they are, not, not to aspire to the grandeur of a Fortune 500 companies, right, who has professional policy writers and you know, in our uh, a room full of lawyers to help them sort through this stuff. But, you know, for the under, under-resourced school district, right, that has legitimately important, socially important problems to solve and do things for you as a young parent, et cetera. And uh, so we, we need to care about that equally as, as a nation. So uh, it's, it's been another lively and fun conversation for the audience. Uh, it's always a pleasure. We're open to your feedback, to your suggestions for topics or your uh inquiries about what we can do for you to support you wherever you happen to be. So please uh, join us for another episode sometime. Subscribe to us in all the usual podcast ways, and we'll catch you at the next episode. Thanks again, fellas. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show today. The thoughts and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are solely theirs and do not necessarily reflect those of CIS. If you're interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website, cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.